You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're in the middle of a series, or actually we just kind of started it, uh, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, our theme this, this series is called Undivided. The church that was in Corinth, which would be modern-day Greece, had a lot of challenges and a lot of difficulties. And Paul actually was there and started the church. In fact, he spent more time that, at that church with them than he did any other church that we're aware of. And so he's kind of writing back to them as uh, kind of like dad, you know. He was there with and started and helped them. Uh, to discover faith in Christ and explain to them what that is all about. And uh, you know what happens. What's the old saying? The cat's away, the mice will play. A little bit of that is going on in this church. Paul's been away for some time, and some people have written back to him and said, hey, we're really concerned. And so he's addressing a number of concerns, a number of big questions, and all of that kind of stuff. And so anyway, so as we think about it, what it means for us as a church, because of the challenges they were There was division and confusion and some conflict and a lot of self-centered stuff going on. And so as we look through this and walk through this book, this is for us as a church today to say, okay, we want to stay united, not become divided. And it's really, as we'll see today, it's all about Jesus. The world around us is filled with divisions and dividing lines, right? I mean, everything. If you drove here this morning, which I think everybody did, uh, unless you crossed over the swamp or lived right down, you know, if you're in Willow, I guess you could kind of cut through the swamps and maybe take the shortcut, or uh, unless you walked here from uh, Western Ave. But, I mean, literally, you drive down the road, there's a dividing line, right? You're not supposed to cross over those yellow solid lines in the middle, going one way and keep the other car going the other way. Divisions, baseball season, American League, National League, two different sets of rules and all of that. And why baseball does that, I have no idea. You're all playing the same game, two different sets of rules. We're going to see this morning that for us as Christians, there's another dividing line. And that center of that line is none other than Jesus himself. And at the core of that division is the cross of Jesus Christ. So read with me, if you would, just a couple of verses and we'll start talking about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, read with, with, with me in verse 18 and verse 19. Paul says this, he says, For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, stupidity, ridiculous, asinine we might say, folly to those who are perishing. The cross, all of the, the testimony that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the story about how God wants to save us from our sins, the message that we are sinners before a holy God, and because of it we've earned God's wrath and God's judgment. It's foolish. That, that whole picture, the very core of what God stands for, who He is and what He stands for, it's foolishness to those who are dying, literally right now are dying, but to us who are being saved, two very distinct groups here, right? Two separate sides of the road. To us who are being saved, not just saved in the past, but an ongoing salvation, the cross is the power of God, the strength, the awesomeness, the glory of God. And he goes on and says this, For it is written, I, this is God speaking, will destroy the wisdom of the wise, And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart, or I will kind of block or overcome. 
Pray with me, would you, while we unpack this. Father, we are grateful for the word of the cross. To us who know Jesus Christ, it is your power. It is your wisdom. And your strength and your wisdom at its most weakest levels, if we could even think of it that way, and we can't, it's stronger than what we have to offer as people. God, I pray you would help us this morning to see the cross for what it is, for our lives to be centered on the cross, and for us to recognize a little better where we live in this world around us, and for us as Christians to not to boast in anything but that cross, but what you have done. So Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to hear from you, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want us to recognize this morning is the cross is the focal point of our lives. We talked last week, the Corinthian church had, they were so into spiritual gifts and all of these gifts, and Paul already began. He doesn't really dig in into that topic straight away until uh, chapters 12 and 13 and 14. But already, right off the bat, he's kind of laying the groundwork, just like if you build a building. He's putting the footers in. He's laying the foundation that he can then begin to deal with some of those things a little bit later on. And he's still in that mode because the church, they, they began to just... They were kind of smitten with philosophy, if you will, of the wisdom of the world, and they really began to focus on the wisdom and the, the knowledge and some of the spiritual gifts that they had there in their midst, and they began focusing on that. And as Paul listened to the concerns and watched the division and the fights, he began to put his finger on the center, or the core of some of the root issues. And what he's saying is, is guys, as we talked about last week, guys, you're taking your eyes off of Jesus. Let's get back to Jesus being in the center. Well, this morning, he goes a little bit farther in, if you will, just like peeling the layer of an onion. You, know, you kind of take one layer off, you get to the next one, you kind of dig into the next one. Paul says, let me go one step farther this morning in essence. It's not just about Jesus that our lives should be centered upon, but it's the fact that Jesus died and he died on that cross. He's then telling us that for us as Christians, for those who claim to follow Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives, that the cross is the very center or focal point of who we are, of our very identity as people and as people of the children of God, and it's at the very focal point of our life. And he says, you need to realize this. There is a dichotomy here. There's a division. The rest of the world looks at this, and thinks, you're absolutely an idiot. You're crazy. You're just stupid. You're ignorant. You are clueless. You are being ridiculous because you actually believe in the cross. For us, we know that the cross is powerful. The cross is amazing. It's God's power on display. When you read the Bible, the Bible describes the, the, the work of God when he made this creation in this world, describes it as, a, as God's handiwork, as God's, almost like God's little crocheting, just kind of little finger work. But when God's power is on display, when he's showing his might, it's the cross. I love creation and I love the world around us, that's child's play for God. That's nothing. To make something out of nothing, small, small things. We want to see the power of God on display. It's nothing short 
of the cross of Jesus Christ. So Paul says for us, we need to get comfortable. We need to recognize that the world around us is going to look at us and just say, you're foolish, you're ignorant, you don't have a clue. We have forgotten how shocking this is, okay? We, we relish in the cross of Jesus, but put, your, put yourself in first century Roman world. The cross was the, the, the choice of execution by Rome, most brutal empire in, in, in that era, in that uh, region. Brutal. And anybody who was crucified was absolutely helpless and weak. I mean, you're impaled hanging there, knowing that you will never walk on that earth again. You're going to die on public display, beaten, whipped, naked, and, and if you don't die of, of, of asphyxiation within a couple of days, no electric chair, let's get this over with quickly and be humane, they're going to come along and break your legs and finally knock you off two or three days later. Moms would not drive down their, on the way to school by the crosses. I mean, think about that. Yeah, we're not going by death row today, kids. Sorry, you know. I mean, this was not, this was not something that you would want to talk about or discuss. It was brutal. And so for the average person to say, you're going to glory in the cross? It would be like for us, you know, maybe you're going to think that the electric chair is something to get excited about? Something that you're going to be proud of, that you're going to glory in, or, or maybe in the French Revolution, you, you're going to, the guillotine, really? That's where your hope is in a guillotine? What in the world are you talking about? This is insane nonsense. I don't get you. So huge implication for us as Christians, get used to the world not getting you. Get used to the world looking at you like you're from planet Mars, like you're absolutely insane. Get over it. Quit. You and I just need to stop feeling like, well, we just want to be accepted by everybody and welcomed by everybody. And we, we've talked a little bit about this before. There's plenty of Christians that are weird enough in the world that the world ought to reject because they're just weird and obnoxious. We don't need to be going down that road, okay? But we should be comfortable with the fact that the world around us, the vast majority, does not accept the cross, is not going to understand you, and is not going to understand me, and is not going to get why are we willing to surrender our life and sacrifice our life for this one called Jesus. Yeah, Jesus was a cool guy, and he walked around and did all this great stuff, Wonderful. It can be kind of cool to believe in, to have faith, if you will, and it's kind of cool and okay to believe in Jesus at some level, but, but not to surrender your life and like put your whole hope in some guy that was so weak that he was actually crucified. I mean, that is just nonsense. It's just absolutely insane. Second thing that also means is when you and I are trying to share that message with someone, they're not going to be able to figure it out on their own. It's not on you. Because of the cross of Jesus, we should recognize that not everybody is going to say, hey, I want that. I want that. Some of you, let me throw you under the bus. Some of you out there don't like chocolate very much, I bet. How many of you really don't like chocolate and don't get it? Oh, come on. I've got a couple of my family. They must not be in their room. I got a couple of kids that like, yeah, I don't like chocolate what planet are you on? You know, like what is going on? So it just, there are going to be people that will not get it, which means for you and for me, when we engage with them, 
We're asking God to do something supernaturally in their heart. It's not you and me. It's not our failure. It's not our success. It's not on us. And third, it means that some people are going to accept it, and some people that we care deeply about are not. I hate that part. I don't like that reality. I wish it weren't true. If I could change anything in the world, it would be that. It wouldn't be to solve the poverty issue. It wouldn't be to solve the clean water issue. It wouldn't be to give education for everybody. It would be that, hey, everybody that hears the gospel is going to think this is the greatest thing and trust Jesus and move forward with it. If I could change one thing in the world, that would be it. It's not going to happen. It's foolishness to the world. To us, it's the center of our life. It is oxygen. It is life for us. It's the very core of who we are. Second thing I want you to recognize, the reason that that is a reality, the reason there is such a dichotomy and a separation of the world, the reason you and I love that, we weren't born into that naturally, but it's because God did something amazing in our heart that he called us, and the Bible says he chose us. Listen with what he says in verse 20. He's explaining this. Don't get lost in his logic. Sometimes you can read the Bible and it gets confusing. You're like, I don't know what all of this means. But read with me just a few verses. It says this, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. In other words, the folly of the cross to save those who believe. Salvation comes by believing in that cross. And he explains what that means. He says, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. Jews and Greeks to Paul. Paul said, look, these are the people that look at the cross and think this is ridiculous. To the religious superstitious people, they're looking for this big oh, sign from heaven. And they always wanted a sign. They wanted this personal touch, if you will, and proof. And Paul's like, the cross is foolish to them because there's nothing, they don't, there's no warm fuzzies about a, somebody dying on a cross. And they don't get it. And it's foolish to them. And to the Greek philosophers, they're like the, 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 the Greek, um, they're like the secular philosophers. The Greeks, they're all about wisdom and knowledge. And like to them, there's no way, this is not logical, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't compute, it's bad math. And Paul says, whichever camp somebody else is in, whether well, the goosebump or spiritualist wanting this supernatural connection, or they're the, the brainiac and, you know, who's kind of the Dr. Spock, the Spock of, uh, you know, give me the science, give me the math, and it's what I can see and prove and touch and taste and all of that. He says, both of those groups look at the cross and they reject it. And he goes on. He says, but in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. Those are the religious or the, the wisdom philosophers. But to those who are called, those are true believers, those are those who are saved. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He explains this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you who are wise according to the worldly standards, which is not a nice way of saying you're not very smart. 
You're not very smart. Not many of you who are wise. Not many who are powerful. Not many who are of noble birth. No royalty. No, you know, not too many uh, in the U.S. Not too many uh, Kennedys or whatever are in your midst. No political you know, uh, no Cuomo's hanging out here too much. Not very many noble people are in your church. He says in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not so ridiculously small that they are ignored and overlooked by everyone. And here's why to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Boil all of that down. Here's what he's saying for you and for me. You and I were born into that world on the wrong side of the highway. The cross is the, the, the I guess, the, the point at which on either side... You were either on a really good side or a really bad side. And all of us were born on the wrong side of that. We were all born in this world, leaning on our own philosophy, making on our own way. And some of us were in that spiritual goosebump camp. By the way, it's something we have to be careful about even as Christians now. Sometimes we can just, even as Christians that want to know God personally, we want to have this supernatural experience all the time when we crave it. And, God, and Paul's like, yeah, that's not what it's all about. It's about the cross. We were born into that world. And he says, it wasn't our wisdom that figured it out. Look carefully. He says this. He says, 21, the wisdom of God through the world, the world did not know God through wisdom. He means this. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you can say today that you have surrendered your life to Christ, and while you know you're not perfect, you're following Him, and you're trusting Him, you're trusting Him now to be the one that solves your sin problem, the one that overcomes your debt problem with God, then it wasn't your wisdom that figured it out. It's not like you looked around the world and like, okay, I'm going to solve this, and I'm going to figure this out and make it happen. We can do that when we're repairing a garage. You can do that when you're trying to balance your checkbook. You can do that when you're trying to figure out all kinds of things. But when it comes to God, you and I are not smart enough. There's not a single person that's ever walked this planet that figured this out on their own. It's not the wisdom of man. It's from God's wisdom that this happens. So two things that God has done, and he tells us, but for you and for me, we are the called. We are those that God did something in our heart, the Holy Spirit, that He moved us from perishing to life, from death to salvation, from separation from God to acceptance by God. And He called us. Just like a parent might call a child, just like your, your boss might call you, hopefully not into the office unless it's to tell you you've got a raise or you've got that new job or whatever. God summons us and he reaches down and he does something amazing in our heart that we desire and we want to pursue him. 
And there's a lot of debate in the Christian world about exactly the mechanics of how that works and, and, and all of those things. And we won't take time to get into that. But let me say this. What this passage is telling us is that nobody gets saved without God doing something in their heart, even initiating it. And then you and I also respond to that calling. And there's a mystery in there that is fully hard to fully comp- it's hard to fully comprehend. But you and I respond to that calling, the wooing of God, and the, the summoning of the Holy Spirit in our life, and we also are those that he chose. I did the really deep Greek study on this. I don't usually talk Greek with you guys, but you know what I discovered when I looked up what choosing means? It means simply to pick. It means like, hey, you go picking apples in September, I choose this apple, and I don't choose that apple. I mean, it's really not rocket science. Well, Sean, how in the world could God choose this and not that, and does that mean God's responsible for this? Now listen. Here's where brains get into trouble. This is where we think that we're smarter than God and we can figure all of this out. And there's all kinds of debates and people end up in all kinds of problems. All I know is, is that God calls and God chooses and God works that supernaturally. He tells the whole world you need to be saved. In the middle of it, he makes sure that there's a whole bunch of people that trust him and follow him. And all the whole point of all of that is the cross. It's that the very center, were it not for God's calling, were it not for God's choosing, were it not for in the middle of all of that, you and I would be hopeless and helpless before a holy, almighty God. Maybe some of that hit you guys the wrong way. I'm not sure. It might not. It might be new to you. I don't know. But let me read this verse 30, and I'll, I'll, we'll move, and I'll share the third and final thing. He says this, and he says, Because of him... Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See verse 30, it says, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Whatever a person thinks about how salvation works in the human heart, whatever camp you end up on, whether you end up with a new ism that has your own name on it, (laughs) and that'll make sense to some of you guys and not others, that's okay. At the end of the day, the Scripture's clear, regardless, you are saved because of God and not because of you. There's no... There's nothing about this that you can say, I did this, I made this happen, I was smart enough, I did that, I did this. Nothing. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Exclamation point, period, whatever you want to do, there it is. So we know that there's a dividing line, and because God has done something in our heart, when Jesus really is Lord and He is your all, We should get comfortable with where we are in the world around us. Our job is to tell the world around us so that they can be saved and to leave all of that mystery to God and to we to simply share those words of life, recognizing that the only reason we even get it is because God has done something in our heart. And the ultimate end of that story is there is no boasting whatsoever that you and I can make spiritually in our relationship with God. 
He says in verse 31, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He says, guys, there's no room for you to take credit for a single thing. Nothing. There's no room for pride. There's no room for your boastfulness at all. It's all about Jesus, and it's all about the cross of Jesus. You see, who Jesus is when we receive Him as Lord of our life, He is the wisdom of God that we received. It was foolishness before our salvation. Like, this is dumb. That's why you'll hear in somebody's story, you know, where they're like, well, I was an atheist convinced that God didn't exist, and I really looked into it, and I'm like, wow. And along the way, what you really hear is not so much that science proves to them, but you hear that God did something in their heart convicting them of sin and them realizing, like, oh, my goodness, I can't explain that away. I need God to do something in my life. Whether you experience that or whether or not somebody grew up in a church who feels like the church abused them, harmed them, or did something wrong, and they're hardened against that, and then if you listen to their story that God did something in their heart to begin softening and melting and drawing them to him, and it's something amazing to where they trusted him. And when Jesus becomes that to us, he becomes the wisdom. Like, that's the answer. That's the answer to the question of the test. That Jesus, he's the wisdom that we need. He's the solution. He's the salvation of all uh, in our lives of what it's all about. And he then becomes for us. Look carefully. Verse 30 he becomes to us that wisdom of God. He's the wisdom that we accept. And that wisdom is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Three things that we get the benefit of. God's righteousness means Jesus Christ himself is the righteousness of God that gets counted onto our account. It's a declared righteousness it's God in heaven saying, I look at you, and I'm declaring you to be good. Think about it this way. I have, uh, we've got a couple of canoes now, and because we were trying to take them out, uh, this is the first year I've ever had two canoes before, and you just can't put two of those on a car, not when they're big canoes. So I've had a trailer, and I haven't had it in, registered in probably four or five years, inspected and all that. So I got it registered so I could take the canoes to the, the camping the weekend, which we had, by the way. Uh, it's a great time uh, the last couple of days. When I went to get inspected, the guys looked at the lights. They looked to make sure the tires were okay. They made sure to look the connection that was on the back of the car was okay. They made sure there was a pin in it, that was, everything was good. They checked it out. Then they declared it to be inspected. And they gave me a little sticker that said it was inspected. Now, here's the craziness. God doesn't work that way. When the Bible says that Jesus is our righteousness, it's the exact opposite. We pull in to get our car, our vehicle inspected. God looks at it. That God doesn't even look at it. He says, yeah, I know this thing's a mess. It'll never pass inspection. But I, as the Lord of heaven and earth, am declaring you to be good, even though I know you're a mess. And you pull out of there with your little inspection sticker, even though your lights don't work, your tires are bald, the brakes aren't right, everything's a mess, the muffler's hanging off, your emissions has gone way long ago, and God says, yeah, you got real issues, but I, the God of heaven, am declaring you to be good. That's amazing. When God looks at our life and says, I know all the junk and crap you've ever done in your whole life, and I'm declaring you to be good, 
There is no higher authority in the land, and he gives us a little sticker, and that sticker is Jesus. It's through what he did on the cross. Then he goes beyond that, and he becomes our sanctification. Sanctification is basically righteousness applied to us. Then God becomes a mechanic and says, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, before you leave, let me put on a new set of tires for you. And he lets you drive away there. That'll be a little better. And he's like, hey, come back next week. I'm going to fix those brakes. Hey, come on back the week after that. Let's work on those lights a little bit. You see, God doesn't just leave us there in this kind of schizophrenic world where he says, I'm calling you good, but you're just going to live in a mess in a crazy world. He says, all right, I'm going to now make you holy and I'm going to work on you as the mechanic. More and more, you're going to become in reality what I always called you to be. Wouldn't it be great if New York State worked that way? Maybe not, because mufflers would be dropping off in the middle of the road and people would be sliding. I mean, if we thought they'd slide off the road in December, first snow, you, you know, wait till everybody's driving around on bald tires or whatever. So that's why this is foolishness to the world. It makes no sense. Nothing in the world operates this way. No inspector says, oh, you're good. We'll figure it out later. <laughs> we'll fix it later. Nobody in their right mind does that. God does. He calls us righteous when we're a mess. And he says, I'm going to make you holy, and I'm going to fix that mess progressively through your life. That's why it's so cool. The Bible says, you know, back when we first read the, the first verse, he says, to, you, to us who are being saved, there's a, two, there's a weird double role here. We are saved, done deal, past tense, in the past when we received Jesus as Lord of our life. But the Bible talks about this progressive salvation, being saved. That's what we just unpacked. The saved in the past is God calling us righteous. Being saved is God progressively making us more and more holy, more and more pulling us out of the muck and the mire of the life and making us conform more and more to his image. And Jesus is that for us. It's not our things that we do that make us righteous or holy. Jesus has become that for us on the cross. It's ours. And the third piece of that, and I'm done, is redemption. That's why Paul is glorying in this cross, because everything hinges upon that. You and I have righteousness, sanctification, and we have redemption. Redemption is that you and I were in prison, shackled, enslaved. And he comes in as the strong man, and he takes the bars, and he bends them, and he sets us free. He sets us free from sin and from death. He pays the price, which is how redemption happens. The price is his own blood on the cross for us. And he does it to set you and me free. You see, sin is so bad, not just because it's, not just because it's against God and God's character. That's, I mean, that's very true, and that's the core of it, but sin is enslaving. It just, it beats us down. We're like the fish. We went fishing. We kind of got our butts kicked fishing, to be honest with you. It really wasn't a very good fishing day when we went there, all right? Would we agree? Yeah, we caught a few, but not much. First cast, I caught like a, it gets bigger all the time, so I'm going to call it like a 20-inch pickerel. It was probably, it was probably more like 17, 18 inches. I didn't measure it, which is, you know, you get away with a lot when you don't measure it. It can just keep growing. Once you measure, like you're done. You're either lying or not. But, you know, first cast, catch this fish. I'm like, wow, this is going to be great fishing. Throw that back in. Let's go get something bigger. I didn't catch anything for two more hours. I'm like, whoa, that fish is looking pretty good. I should have kept that one, you know. That's how it works. 
And it, when the fish is hooked and caught and in your hands, it's at your, it's completely at your mercy. It can't do anything to get away from you. Well, a pickerel's pretty slimy and it can flop and flail and do their thing, right? But it really can't get away. What Jesus is saying, what the Bible's telling us, guys, is, is that Jesus comes in and he gets the hook out of our mouth, he breaks us free, breaks us loose, and he sets us free. We're redeemed. And he's, he's the one that paid the price of this in his own blood. So guys, for us, it's not that just we worship God. It's not just about faith like the world talks about. Faith is only good if it's in someone who can back it up, and that's God. But it's not just a generic God. It's the God who is the ruler of this world who sent his son Jesus. But our faith isn't even just about Jesus. It's the fact that Jesus died. It's the cross. That's the core. That's the nut inside the kernel. Our faith is in God in heaven who sent his son Jesus Christ who died so that we could be declared righteous, so that we could be made more and more holy, so that you and I could be freed from the junk, the sin in our heart, and have life with Jesus, life with him forever, beginning now, and it gets experienced fully in every way when we are in heaven. That's the center of our life. That's the very core. Guys, implications for that? You and I should just be grateful that we're saved. I like the men's sharing we shared around the campfire. Uh, was that last night? It was two nights ago. Time just gets away from you. You just forget, right? Probably a sign of my old age. And one person, I think it was there, uh, said, you know, where would I be tonight, in essence, without Jesus? There should be a gratitude in our heart. Where would we be? Where would we be if we looked at all of this and thought, oh, that's nonsense and foolishness? We'd be a mess. We would absolutely be a disaster, every one of us. So there should be gratitude in our heart. There should be hope in our heart. If Jesus did all of this for us, what incredible hope. It should be no matter how awful our life is going and what challenge we got facing, like, God's got this. Jesus died for me to take care of me. Oh my goodness, I think he's strong enough. I think he's going to do it. So our whole focus should be upon Jesus in the middle of it. I don't care what obstacle you're facing, what challenge you're facing. There's always a piece of it that Jesus is the one that we begin to focus. So I don't know where this is hitting you this morning. I want to challenge you and I want to encourage you to, to look back and reflect in your heart and your life. Is your heart truly centered on Jesus? If you've never really surrendered to Christ as Lord, and maybe you're sitting back skeptical, God's not worried about that. You might say there's no skin off his nose what you think about him. But I challenge you, you need to trust Jesus and surrender your life to him. He's your only hope. Maybe you have surrendered your life to Jesus, but maybe you've kind of drifted and just gotten your eye off that ball, if you will. The cross of Jesus is at the core of everything. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.